The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. Architecture, the process of taking art and construction methodologies and creating something that could be a placemaker, something to be a signifier, or just something that's pretty to look at. Architecture very much drives the modern city and the ancient city. What about here in D.C.? What can we say and learn about architecture? Well, I'm going to talk today with three experts on that topic here in the studio. Gavin Hughes-Daniels is here. Hi. Gavin's principal and co-founder, Wingate Hughes. Dean Madsen, writer, photographer, and founder of Brutalist DC. Dean, good to see you. Thanks for having me. And Ken Bibbery, managing director, suburban DC office of Savills. Ken, it's good to see you as always. Good to see you. Well, gentlemen, let's get into the topic. Uh, Gavin, I'll start with you as uh, the architect in the house. What does architecture mean to you? How do you apply it in your daily life? Architecture means everything to me. Um, I've been on a, a journey for 10 years now with Wingate Hughes Architects. In a lot of ways, uh, Jonathan, to bring optimism. To our, to our country, to as many people as I can. I believe architecture has a real power um, to enable people to see things in a different way and to inspire them to be better people and do more. Dean, what about you? I noticed uh, when I was reading your bio, you're a photographer, you, you're a founder of Brutalist DC, which is a type of architecture. You seem to be a pretty strong observer and critique of architecture, as it were. Sure, yeah. Um, I uh, did a master's in architecture at UCLA and then transitioned into um, architecture journalism, which after doing a master's at UCLA, I transitioned into architecture journalism and have been observing and writing about the uh, architecture of Washington, D.C. for the last eight years or so. Um, and th the city has a wonderful collection of brutalist buildings. Um, and I might be the only person in the room that thinks that, but there is some value to all of that uh, concrete that we have here in D.C., in addition to kind of the other more uh, readily known and widely appreciated neoclassical buildings. Interesting. We'll come back to brutalism and neoclassical architecture when we start our conversation. Those are two, I think, signifiers of that maybe people don't realize are the themes of a lot of the buildings that we see every day. Ken, uh, you spend a lot of time these days helping people find the right real estate and get themselves located here in the region. How does architecture relate to what you do? Well, it's one of these things at Savills. We're solely focused on representing tenants in the market. And when we develop the criteria of what we're looking for for tenants, it's not only about the economics or the location. It's really about the environment you're creating to attract and retain talent. And the workforce today is really in a position to appreciate some grit, some character, something unique about the physical space. So from the moment we're walking down the street to see a building, expectations and opinions are already being formed by what the building looks like on the outside, what the landlord has done to preserve the character of the interior lobby, and then as we walk through the building, it's not only just about that individual office that you're going to occupy every day, it's about the entire ecosystem that your employees are going to inhabit for you. So a lot of this is now more important than maybe ever before and something that we're putting uh, as, a, as a deal point as we evaluate options on behalf of tenants. So why does the look and feel of a place matter so much, guys? Why does it matter? The look and feel matters <clears throat> of, a, of any place because it, it can directly affect your mood. It can, it can affect your attitude. Um, a lot of times 
one of the things we, we really work on at Wingate Hughes is to try to let architecture get out of your way. Um, you've all been in spaces that are too small, that don't quite feel right, that something's off, and you can't quite tell what it is. Um, when the space gets out of your way or when the space makes you feel a certain way, something good can happen, and, and great architecture can do that. Um, I love Dean's point on, on brutalism. Brutalist buildings get out of the way, and they are true and authentic to what they are. Um, they were built with all the exposed pieces to them, much like a lot of the trends that we see right now in current interior architecture. Well, let's talk a little bit about that just initially so our listeners can get inside the tent with you. Brutalist, neoclassical, we see a lot of neoclassical buildings here in town without realizing. Dean, what is neoclassical architecture? And then let's talk about brutalist so people can start to get an idea of the, the terms we're using as we continue our conversation. Sure. So neoclassical architecture kind of takes cues from ancient Greek temples and uh, the, the kind of ruins that you might see, like the Acropolis, are kind of form givers for places like the National Archives, the Lincoln Memorial, uh, to some extent, the Jefferson Memorial. There's, there's a, a strong tradition in Washington architecture memorials, especially, of drawing from classical precedent with oversized columns um, that are repeated in, in several rows and enfilades. Um, and those types of forms are the kinds of things that uh, are founding, uh, the, the founders of the city deliberately chose as signifiers of the seat of government. Well, neoclassical, when I think about it, uh, having just recently come back from Italy, for example, you know, neoclassical harkens back to the Renaissance harkens back to early Roman. It harkens back to ancient history, as it were, ancient democracies, this signifying thing. And so it's not surprising when we sit in an imperial capital like Washington, D.C., that you'd have a lot of neoclassical architecture. But now let's talk about architecture seems to be migrating away from we're an imperial capital to something different. How does brutalism fit into that? Well, that's a, an interesting question. I think brutalism was kind of an offshoot of that impetus to provide stature to the government through building. And in many cities, Boston, D.C. especially, um, the government was taking these new forms uh, of concrete, which is readily available material at the time, um, and using that to create massive buildings to house thousands of government employees over millions of square feet of building space. So the Federal Trade Commission building downtown or the um, the Pentagon would be examples of this type of architecture? Um, the FBI building would FBI be a great example. Yeah, okay. the FBI building uh, to some extent, uh, the HHS building um, and HUD, so the Hubert H. Humphrey building. Those two in particular are by an architect called Marcel Breuer. At the HUD building, uh, Marcel Breuer was using precast concrete to, to create a repetition of forms that he had also done in several other headquarters buildings around the world. And this was something that allowed for efficient construction and mass production in ways that um, could make a big building quickly and relatively cheaply, which is something that the government was uh, not interested in overblowing its budgets. And that was actually the first um, building of its kind uh, in D.C. So, Gavin, um, I think about what I've heard so far. Mm -hmm. Sounds to me like a lot of the architecture, the older architecture that surrounds us, occurred because it was a government town in a lot of ways, a, a signifying that it's a seat of power and so forth. Comparing Art City to, say, New York, you know, where there has been for years architectural innovation, the Seagram's Building, Lipstick Building, various sure. uh, cutting-edge things. Now we've got condominiums rising to the sky and slivers and so forth. 
what's happening in DC? How how is how is architecture developing in DC? Are we becoming more like a New York, or, or are we still an imperial capital? What's fascinating about DC is the community-based feel of DC and the individualistic nature of DC. We have a lot of buildings that can stand right on their own, and together they all go together to form this amazing community we have. I was just in Houston uh, last week and thinking about all the different pockets of development that Houston's had. You might have a beautiful development that has some townhomes, has your different retail amenities, a little bit of office maybe, and then you have 10 miles to the next one. Here, it all comes together, and you're within blocks of that next quote-unquote community. Mm-hmm. D.C., I, th- I think, is, is continuing to, con- to look like D.C. It's not starting to look like anywhere else because we have so many different cultural influences that have come to this city since its beginning and left their imprint here. And I think that's an important tradition that we need to continue. I agree with that. I do wonder, Ken, I know you spent a lot of time in the suburbs with your job. I wonder how this is going to play out where we have, we're now having neighborhoods pop up next to metro stations. I was on the toll road just the other day driving into D.C. and looks like there's going to be a downtown area resting and going to be a downtown area just everywhere there's a metro. Will they have a different character or how is this going to unfold? I think there's a couple of things to think about in this region. Um, because of height limits in D.C., D.C. doesn't go up like New York would. It kind of goes out, right? So when you look at the last 10 years, one of the things I think you're going to see is new neighborhoods in D.C., Navy Yard, Noma, have, have really exploded with new architecture, new businesses, a new ecosystem and identity of their own. That then kind of continues outward to what's happening in National Landing with Amazon and Tyson's and Reston really coming into their own as their own ecosystems where people are going to live, work, and play in those areas. So I think it's incumbent on a lot of public-private partnerships and dialogue and discussion between all stakeholders about how you create that kind of environment and don't rush to just build towers to occupy, but actually be thoughtful about the community uh, that you're creating. And I think what's one of the larger uh, macro trends that's happening in real estate in general, because this is a very strong tenant market, we have millions of square feet that have delivered and are slated to deliver, is the fact that companies are listening more to their employees about what they want um, in terms of an ecosystem and space, whether it's more light, natural air, you know, this environment that they actually inhabit. And now landlords are being very responsive to the tenants. So, That's super. When we come back after the break, I want to continue this conversation and turn our attention to, because this is an important thing, how architecture is going to set the tone for what type of community we want to have going forward. Watch what, what's working in Washington next, or we'll be right back. to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace.
And we're back talking about architecture with Gavin Hughes, Daniel's principal co-founder, Wingate Hughes, Dean Madsen, writer, photographer, and founder of Brutalist DC, and Ken Biberai, managing director, Suburban DC Office Savills. Gents, before we took break, I wanted to come back. Architecture is clearly something that sets the tone. Sounds to me like we got to get it right for our economy, for our economy and a community to really grow properly. What's your thoughts on that? I think diversity is one of the things that we should always be keeping in mind, right? The workforce is changing in D.C. It's not just a government and legal town. We're seeing a ton of innovation, uh, stuff that has actually really been here for a long period of time. I mean, the Internet started in Northern Virginia. Tech companies have been here. But they're getting a lot more attention, both from landlords, developers, and the community at large. So I think appreciating the diversity of talent that's coming here. Uh, is really important, especially for them to react on the architectural side. How do you do that? I mean, how, how does architecture signify diversity? There's a, there's a lot of things that, that go into that. Um, at Wingate Hughes, we really look at the workforce, look at the goals and the mission of the company, and think about what you want to get out of your day every day. Employers are starting to look more for how their staff can grow personally. When you have a staff that's learning every day, they're collaborating, they're communicating, they're working together, they're innovating. If they're learning for themselves and focused on that, then great things happen for your company. The key to that from our standpoint is to provide enough, uh, a diverse array of spaces. I think um, Everfi is a wonderful example up on the west side at 2300N. A wonderful leading tech company, Education Tech. Um, this is our second office that we've designed for them. The array of spaces that we've given them not just for conference spaces. You see, it's, it's not about, is a, is a room labeled a certain thing so I know how to use it? It's about giving them an, an array of spaces that they can figure out how to use, that they can apply different types of use to. That gets you, that gets you more, more motivated. So architecture, in your context, is, is about setting the right mood or socializing people to employees to act the way you want to act, which makes enormous sense to me having managed organizations. You know, if you want somebody to be collaborative, don't put them in a bunch of cubicles that are really dark. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> but uh, Dean, t- pulling it back, you know, Brutalist DC, you know, you, you're looking at architecture more as a, a, it seems like more of a bigger placemaking thing, right? I mean, it, if buildings are large, if they're Hulk over, if there's nothing to look at on the ground floor, it alienates people vis-a-vis if you have storefronts and cafes, you know. Sure, and and since you mentioned um, activated uh, street level, uh, the FBI building is kind of a wonderful example of how that uh, how crucial that is to have in the sense that um, there was actually an activated storefront uh, retail level planned for that building that was later scrapped with security concerns. Mm-hmm. Now that building is seen as impenetrable, and that's largely by design, but it's viewed as this kind of hulking monster on Pennsylvania Avenue um, and uh, until recently was, was viewed as a, a, a teardown. Whether or not that will still be the case it remains in question with the current administration. Um, however, uh, I think that it's important to note that it's a, such a big building. Um, there's so much embodied energy in the concrete that was used to construct it that that is energy we won't be able to get back. Mm-hmm. Uh, producing concrete is a chemical process, and you can't mm-hmm. recycle concrete. So I would propose that an adaptive reuse for a structure like that would be a much better use of resources, which we now find are limited, uh, to uh, produce a better um, living condition in in the city of the future. Dean, I think you make a great point. You hit on a real trend that we've seen in D.C. People are rediscovering buildings. They're rediscovering the beauty that a building already had that might have been covered up for years. We see it at Uline. 
We see it at the Hecht Warehouse. Um, we see it at any building that, that I've designed in around the city where people say, oh, there's brick. Is there brick behind that drywall? Let's pull that out. I want to see it. I want to get back to the authentic, real nature of the, of, of the building. And there were so many buildings that have been beautifully designed that all of a sudden air conditioning and other mechanical, electrical, and, and infrastructure of the building took over in a, in a disgusting way just to, just to make the building serve, quote, unquote, modern needs. Now we have better ways to do those things, and it's, it's allowed us and enabled us to go back and rediscover the beauty. I mean, just to piggyback on that, I, one of the things that you're noticing a lot of with buildings are uh, an immediate rush to amenities, right? Like landlords are putting roof decks, taking advantage of space that may have been underutilized, adding gyms, conferencing, coffee shops. So the building itself is becoming its own ecosystem or community, uh, and tenants in the marketplace are expecting that. So there's a rush to amenities being provided and tenants having a lot of leverage in demanding basically of landlords to provide even more to them. I would argue, hearing uh, your discussion today, that what we're seeing is a return to architecture as being in existence to service the individual rather than architecture being in place to educate people to be citizens. Does that does that feel, does that I feel think, right? I think it does. You could, you could ask a lot of people to describe neoclassical architecture, and they might get close to it. They might have a feeling of it. But I think gone are the feelings of this type of architecture is supposed to mean this type of thing. Mm-hmm. Architecture and design are so fluid right now. And we have a culture that is more educated in design than ever in our history of humanity. We have more people that, that understand and have a better sense of design acumen than we've ever had before. And I think that's a positive thing. And it's interesting, they get it by osmosis, right? I mean, it's not, very few people are getting the training, but yet we have a, why is that? I'm not sure I know the answer to why people, more people are getting it. Um, but I just wanted to say a quick anecdote that um, yesterday I was scrolling through Twitter and Metro had posted uh, of an influencer using the Metro itself as a backdrop for a fashion shoot. Right, which is really interesting in a lot of ways, right? Like we're, we're experiencing architecture in different ways. And Metro is this beautiful example of sort of the grand scale of Washington architecture. And it's all underground. Um, the, the, the stations are longer than the Washington Monument is tall, and they're beautiful. And, and here we have a, an appreciation for its aesthetic um, being used in a new way. Um, and I think that's just going to become more the norm as people find buildings as places to find themselves uh, within the larger urban context. Okay. And, and just one thing on that, I, I read an article that Dean wrote actually in I think Architectural Digest about a hip hop architectural camp that took place in DC. And as I read that, I, I was just struck by the nature of we're, we're crowdsourcing more, we're asking more people, we're spreading and trying to engage the community and really tapping a culture. But I thought that was a, a great piece and is exciting to diversify even how who is at the table in making these decisions and thinking about architecture and design? Well, it feels to me that there is an architectural character that's emerging and that's unique to this, this area, the city, the broader region, and will have a different look and feel 10, 20 years from now. Got you for just a couple more minutes. What's it going to look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now? I think architecture 10 to 20 years from now is going to look better. Um, I think it's going to be more accessible to everybody. And I think that if I, if I look at some of the infrastructure pieces that are happening, um, whether it's 5G put in, whether it's Verizon working with the city of D.C. Um, to, to make sure that we have infrastructure put in for the future, we are going to, to be a lot more connected. There's going to be a lot fewer breaks. And I think that there's going to be a lot more optimism about what we can do. 
We have more of everything in the world than we've ever had before. And it's time that we start doing more with it. I think how we work will continue to evolve and change with smartphones and devices and the ability to work remotely. I think that'll continue uh, to be captured in a sense of hospitality in the ecosystem that landlords and tenants are, are receiving and providing. So that's going to continue. I think the tenant-friendly nature of the market will remain, especially here in the D.C. metro area. Um, I think we've seen regional collaboration in a way that's never occurred in this area. I think the D.C. region will continue to be a magnet for companies and for talent in a way we don't really appreciate. Now, I think Amazon was just that first step, and I think it's only going to uh, continue to, to grow. It's interesting to try to picture the city in, in 10 years. Uh, my kids will be teenagers then, and uh, I worry about what that will bring. Um, but I could tell you if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> in another episode, maybe. Yeah. Um, I think the, the city is going to have to do a lot of reckoning um, with its uh, coastal nature. Um, we forget that we're bordered by two rivers, and uh, the tidal basin is uh, more increasingly at high tide. So I think there needs to be some planning around that which the city has already started to look at. But uh, I guess to, to Gavin's point also about our having more and more of everything, we also have fewer and fewer resources with which to build. There's a shortage of good sand for, for making concrete, for example. Um, there's a shortage of, of metal um, uh, that we use in our phones and everything else. Um, and, and so I think that we really need to focus on uh, keeping the buildings that we already have and not tearing them down when they could be repurposed. So... We may look a lot more like you go to Rome. Rome's it's like peeling an onion. Mm-hmm. It's it's every right. it's every year and all years at the same time. Is that where you think we'll get to? Uh, we've been good friends with with uh, the folks over at Douglas Development. Um, I think Norman Jamal is going to take that company even further, and they've been a wonderful example in the district of taking old buildings, bringing them back to life, and adding something new to them. I think we're going to see more examples of that. We cannot just keep building buildings, tearing them down, and rebuilding new ones. I think there's going to be more of an emphasis on doing just what you're saying, peeling back that onion, finding something beautiful, and then adding something new to it that's, that has to do with our technology. And, and because of the vacancy rate, tenants have so many options that they really want to have some kind of grit, some type of character, right? It's not like we're in a market like San Francisco where we're just so desperate for space for tenants that any building will do. We have the world is our oyster if you're a tenant in the market. It's fascinating to me. We keep coming back to this grit, reality, authenticity. What we're really saying is that the millennials and millennial taste is shaping what is expected. Because I'm old enough to remember when pocket protectors were cool and everybody's going to live on the moon. And boomers wanted modern, 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 right? And now we're talking about authenticity. I think it's a very interesting testimony of where we are as, as a community. Last thing, I'm going to ask you a quick one, each of you, before we go. For our listeners, what's your favorite piece of architecture you think somebody should go check out when they're walking around town? I think one of these things that I notice in New York all the time is people are always walking with their fo- with their head in their iPhone. And I was in New York for 12 years, and now that I'm back, I love just opening my eyes and looking. There are so many monuments and statues and things in D.C. that you never even notice or take the time to read what that's about. And I think that's— You got one? I love 1500 K Street as a building because they preserve the facade, and then they just redid the entire interior so it's state-of-the-art. Do they have space to lease there? We just took the last one. All right. <laughs> Gavin, how about you? The National Portrait Gallery has always been my favorite. I love Norman Foster's roof that they put over the atrium, and I think the inside of the building is so well-preserved and just just amazing. Uh, second to that, I got to I gotta give it to Apple and, and the new what they've done over at the City Museum and the way that they've integrated something new and fresh into an old building speaks exactly to what we were talking about. They left what was authentic and improved it and made it better. 
I actually produced a map of 40 buildings around D.C. I, it would be hard to choose a favorite amongst those. But if I had to, if I'm pressed to, I think my favorite building in D.C. is the Hirshhorn Museum, which is kind of this concrete donut uh, that lands on the National Mall right at its midpoint and provides this awesome kind of round counterpoint to everything else, like the Air and Space Museum next to it and uh, all of the sort of larger government buildings behind it. Um, it's a great place uh, to visit, a uh, great place to take shelter when it's raining on the mall, and, uh, and it has great art as well. And a place to make you hungry. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Guys, it was great having you here today talking about this topic. I learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners did too. Gavin Hughes-Daniels, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Dean Madsen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Ken Vibere, thanks for joining us. Great seeing you. See you next time on What's Working in Washington. believe there's such a need for authentic information that's positive and useful. You know, there are many, many people here in the D.C. region who get up every day and just get after creating new things and are committed to making our community better. My producer, Tracy Madigan, and I speak with people every day that tell us amazing stories of that they want to share about the progress they're making, the things that they care about, and why they're proud to be part of the greater Washington community. You're going to meet many of them on this show. That's what working in Washington really means to us. Now more than ever, I feel that a positive voice is needed in our society, our communities. We need to make sure that we reach each other and that we work together. And we'll do our best to make sure that we're genuine and every show provides you with useful insights. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, The Sunbathers, and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout out to Marymount University School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. Check us out at marymount.edu. And of course, thanks to Active Navigation, Sarefloor Shaw, and the Greater Washington Board of Trade provide the financial support to make this show possible. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.